You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Tell someone the title of my sermon tonight, A Thrill of Hope, A Thrill of Hope. Can anyone guess where uh, that, that line is from, which Christmas carol that title is from? Thank you, Oh Holy Night. Thank you so much. Some Christians in this room. Fantastic. I thought the title was fitting as tomorrow marks the first day of the Advent season. Uh, The Advent calendar, actually. Many Protestant churches around the world has the tradition of coming together every Sunday leading up to Christmas and lighting a candle uh, to commemorate a different theme or a different spiritual truth concerning the birth of Christ. And tomorrow, depending on which uh, church ca- uh, calendar you follow, the first theme of the Advent season is hope. The hope that the birth of Christ brings into the world. And so for the next couple of weeks, though our church will not be lighting any candles just so that we adhere to some fire codes and we don't set off any alarms, we will be taking a look at each of those, those Advent themes, those spiritual truths that the season brings. And so tonight, we will be discussing hope. To understand the hope that the birth of Jesus brings, I think it's important for us to go back to the original Christmas story. And no, I'm not talking about 2,000 odd years ago in a manger in Bethlehem, but all the way back to the beginning during the fall of man in the garden. See, this passage that we just read is where it all began, where the seed of Christmas hope was planted only to be fully realized at the birth of Christ. And we won't get a full picture, we won't grasp the the immensity of this Christmas hope uh, unless we go back to the beginning of it all, to, to why that hope was necessary, why we needed that hope. We won't grasp the weight of the, that hope unless we go back to what, the, what Bible scholars and theologians call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. And my hope is that as we unpack our passage tonight and this hope we have in the Advent uh, season and in Christ, that we would be emboldened to carry this truth into whatever dark recesses or dark corners of our lives to let that hope shine. That by being reminded of what our hope entails, that we would be strengthened against whatever scheme of the enemy, whatever depravity of man, and whatever weakness of our flesh that comes our way. Because as we'll see tonight, church, the spark of hope that God starts in the garden becomes the wildfire that illuminates and vanquishes the darkness of this world. So come with me as we jump back in back in time to the very beginning of where Christmas started in the garden. Everyone say, Merry Christmas. Fantastic. Hope you all are coming to the Christmas dinner. Woo. Now to begin, I want to, I want to set up the scene because we know the story of the fall. We know the story of, of Adam and Eve and the garden. And I think we've been so familiarized with the story that we lost some of the nuances of what takes place in the garden. And we forget the gravity of, of what took place. So let's recap a little. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the entire first chapter of Genesis uh, details the six-day creation process of God. And remember how e- after each day, God says that his creation was good. Note that he doesn't say perfect. 
Because perfect in ancient times denotes a process in which something is being made good. So when God declares that what he created was good, he's declaring an absolute. Creation was inherently good. There was no need for changes. There was no need for adjustment or a plan B. There was no need for some evolutionary process in which something will turn into something so that it'll become perfect or it'll become good. Everything was already good. That's chapter one. And chapter two comes and, and it's, it zooms in to focus the day five and day six where God creates animals and humans. It gives a more detailed account of that process. And if you've ever been to a Christian wedding or heard a sermon on, on relationships, you've probably heard that this is the first instance where God said something was not good. Verse, two, or verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. God acknowledges our need for relationship, not just romantically, but simply to be in community, to be in fellowship with one another. And the lack of that is, in the first human's life, compels God in the moment to say, this is not good. Man should not be alone. The first evil in the universe was a lack of relationship. So as we know, God puts Adam to a deep sleep and sleep and heaven's knife heaven's knife cuts him deep and when he awoke from his sleep oh my goodness a wife right any single any single guys wish it was that easy right you go to sleep one moment and the next thing you know bam you get a wife the next day it's not that easy i know um, even Jesus had to go to the cross for his bride, right? So it's not that easy for us. So here it was, the beginning of creation. Everything was good now. God reconciled the only evil thing in the universe and created and even established marriage in the process. And not only that, but he then takes Adam and Eve and then places them in a garden where they didn't have to work for food. They didn't have to, they could uh, go ahead and eat whatever fruit they want from the trees and the bushes. And they could hang out with lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, right? This was perfect. Everything was provided for. This was, this was an all-inclusive stay at the Garden of Eden. All they had to do was not eat from one fruit or one tree and one fruit, and, and then they and their kids would have this all access lifetime pass to paradise, to Eden. And listen, it wasn't just good physically, it was also good emotionally and mentally. We read later how Adam and Eve lived naked, they were, they were nude, there was no clothes. Because, in a good way, they didn't have any shame. And emotionally and mentally, they were free. They didn't have any insecurities. They didn't have any, uh, um, any shame or self-loathing. And, and, of course, they didn't have lust for one another. So this is, this is why, in, in, in their nakedness, they were free. They were emotionally and mentally secure. And on top of that, spiritually speaking, they were walking and talking with God in the cool of the garden. They had a right relationship with God. They were not afraid of being in His holy presence and being consumed by it. This was paradise. Everything was good. Now put yourself in that kind of world for a moment. It's very distant and it's not, it's not at all familiar to us living in, in 2000, what is it, 21 now. There was no death. No illness, no sadness, no grief, no shame, no sin, no depression, no insecurities, no feelings of loneliness, no anxiety, no, no anxiety of what you're going to eat tomorrow or how you're going to provide for your family the next day, no fear of judgment, no separation from God. Everything was good. 
Then chapter 3 happened. Evil slithers into the picture and, and it goes from rated E for everyone to this rated R horror movie. It says in our passage, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So at, at some point after creation, after Adam and Eve ha- has settled into the garden, it seems that Lucifer fell from heaven. It's not really clear, but I'm, I'm under the, this assumption because God would not declare the universe to be good if the devil was already around running amok in it. And so after Adam and Eve settles in the garden, the devil inhabits or possesses a serpent, a snake, and he tempts the first humans. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He introduces doubt. But not just that, look, look who he's talking to. It's the woman in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, why is Eve the one talking here? In chapter 2, God gave the commandment to Adam to not eat from the tree. Eve wasn't even made yet. It also should have been Adam who was on guard, who was protecting his wife at this point. But this was strategic because the serpent was already sowing division among the first two humans. And verse 2, let's continue there. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't say that you couldn't touch it, but that's the point of doubt, to try and get you to second-guess the truth. In verse 4 it says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent introduces doubt, then division, and now deception. This is the biggest lie ever told and the biggest lie that humanity is still believing. You can be the God of your own life. You can decide for yourself what is good and evil. Your will be done. In verse 6 it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband was with her and he ate. In First John chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle John places all sin into three categories. He says in verse 16 of First John chapter 2, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. He gets that from the fall. For I guess that, going back to verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life. In verse 7, then the eyes of both were open. Literally the definition of being woke. Sin, evil, was introduced into the good universe that God created. Everything that we despise today, that we fear today, that we loathe today, that causes us great sorrow today was brought in by one bite, by one act of rebellion against a holy God. Death came in, cancer came in, depression came in, guilt and regret and pain and grief and fears and addictions and sexual perversions and greed and partiality and selfishness and violence and doubts and anxiety and loneliness and shame and regret. All of that came in. Verse 7 even says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They became ashamed of their nakedness. Everything evil found its entry point into our universe in the garden. And worst of all, 
that good and right relationship that, that humanity had with God was severed that same day. In verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? I love this because God already knows what happened. God already knows that this, they disobeyed him. But out of his loving grace, he still pursues them. He still seeks after them. Verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is where humanity begins to run from God. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? Again, God already knows what's happened, but he's giving them the opportunity right here and right now to, to confess, to take responsibility for their sin, to own up to their mistake. But look what Adam says instead. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. How human is that? Adam blames God. He blames his wife. He blames someone else. And then he claims innocence for himself. I just ate the fruit, right? There's nothing wrong with eating fruit. There's anti-toxin you know, anti things inside of it. It's healthy, vitamin C, right? What's wrong with that? I'm the victim here. God gave the opportunity for Adam to take responsibility for his sin, but instead he blames God, he blames his wife, and he claims innocence in the matter. And again, humanity is still doing this today. So quick to blame God, so quick to blame others, claiming to be the victim in everything. Clearly a family trait. Of course, Eve does the same thing. Verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. She blames the serpent as well and claims innocence for herself. This is the fall of man. A day where creation was radically corrupted by man's disobedience and all of humanity became hostile to God. Humanity committed cosmic treason. Picture this. Everything was good. God, who cannot lie, declared that everything was good. Then in a moment of human weakness, God... All of reality was plunged into darkness, doomed to experience death and sickness and grief and all condemned to suffer the wrath of God. Next to Calvary, this is the, this is the darkest day in human history. And don't forget the weight of that. This was the day that the devil established his reign over the world. God gave dominion to man to subjugate the place, to subjugate earth and, and to be stewards of it. But instead they handed dominion over to the enemy. Yet in the midst of that darkness, the seed of hope was planted by God himself. Listen to this, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is the first aspect of hope that we have in the midst of darkness that we see at the beginning and the dawn of creation. This is the hope of retribution. Hope of retribution. God judges the serpent for deceiving humanity in the most epic way. He curses the serpent so that for the rest of time it will have to crawl on its belly and eat the dust of the earth as a symbol of Satan's degradation and defeat. 
In ancient times, the idiom of eating dust or licking dust was a metaphor to metaphor of defeat for someone who had been utterly brought low, utterly humiliated, utterly defeated. And this is what God was saying in, in cursing the serpent to crawl on its belly and eat the dust of the earth. He's saying, Lucifer, the son of the morning, the angel of light, the prince of the powers of the air, you have been degraded, you have been debased, made lower than any livestock, any beasts of the field, you have been defeated. Listen, whenever you see a snake, it should remind you that the enemy has been destroyed. That from the beginning of time, God has declared the humiliation of the one who kills and steals and destroys the things of God. That whenever you see a snake, it should remind you that every lie, every deception of the enemy has already been judged by the truth of God. Whenever you see a snake, it should bolster you, bolster you to know that the enemy who is after your kids, after your family, after your health, after your very life, God has already declared retribution and defeat over him. Listen, you can take this truth to the bank. Snakes will never go extinct. They will forever be a symbol of God's retribution on Satan. And we even see this in Scripture. Isaiah 65, we get a glimpse of Christ's new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth that is coming. Isaiah 65 verse 25 says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. For the rest of eternity, the serpent will forever eat the dusts of the earth to commemorate the defeat of the one who deceived us in the garden, of the one who brought evil into God's good creation. Snakes will forever in all eternity be a reminder of God's judgment and retribution on Satan. Who would have thought that a snake would be a symbol of hope? That's why God has Moses craft a bronze snake and put up on a pole for people to gaze upon and find healing because it was a foreshadowing of the serpent, of the serpent's ultimate defeat at the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians that God disarmed the rulers and the authorities, that's the devil and the fallen angels, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Listen, church, that's the enemy that we're dealing with. A defeated enemy, a humiliated enemy. Don't listen to the lie of the world that God and the devil are somehow at war and each side is trying to overcome the other and it's like a stalemate. The battle, the battle has already been decided. The devil has already been brought low, degraded at God's word. The war has already been won. Remember this next time you are tempted, next time you are spiritually attacked by the enemy, Remember that we face a defeated foe. That is the hope of retribution, that man's greatest enemy, Satan, has already been humiliated and defeated from the very beginning of time. But the hope doesn't stop there. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. I remember I had a prof in university once who who said that this verse is meant to give a reason or an etymology as to why women are afraid of snakes. So ladies, if you're afraid of snakes, here's why. If you're not afraid of snakes, well, you better get fearful of snakes because the Bible says that you're, you're supposed to be afraid of snakes. And men, if you're afraid of snakes, I'll pray for you, right? Uh, well, fortunately, we have the full counsel of Scripture to unpack what this verse means. 
The word enmity here is eba in the original Hebrew, meaning deep animosity between two persons. So already this verse can't simply be a reason as to why women are afraid of snakes because the notion of persons, persons don't apply to snakes. The curse of enmity is between the serpent, which was, a, which was a metaphor, a representation of Satan, and the woman, and of course her offspring. So now this is where the full counsel of Scripture comes into play because what, what does the rest of the Bible say about fallen humanity? Well, in John chapter 3, verse 19, it says this, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, As it is written, none, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul even goes as far as equating fallen humanity with the serpent himself. In verse 13, he says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps are, is under their lips. That's a snake. And in verse 18, he says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. What the rest of Scripture tells us is that fallen humanity is on the same side as the serpent. In John chapter 8, Jesus even says to an unbelieving crowd, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So how is it then that part of God's curse on the serpent is enmity, a deep animosity between the serpent, the devil, and the woman and her offsprings? When clearly fallen humanity, according to the rest of Scripture, simply does the will of their father, the devil, and not just does it, but delights in it. So what is the curse talking about here? Well, let's go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 to 9. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 to 9. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Church, the reason why there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman is because God, through the woman, will create for himself a people born of God, who obey God, who follow God, and who love God, and as a result, hate the devil. Church, the curse of enmity between the serpent and the woman is the hope of regeneration. The hope of regeneration. It is the hope of new birth, of a new heart, one of flesh and not of stone. A will that pursues the desires of God and not the desires of the enemy. God from the beginning declares for himself a remnant, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, those he's called out of darkness into his marvelous light. They will be the ones who become the enemy of Satan, who will have a deep hatred for sin and animosity towards the kingdom of darkness itself. And church, that's who we are. We are the fulfillment of the serpent's curse. This is why the enemy hates the church and hates Christians, because we are the ones who have been called out to not bend the knee to the prince of this world. Picture this, right? Lucifer, he's in heaven and he covets the kingdom of God, God's throne. He rallies a third of the heavenly hosts and, and makes war in heaven according to Revelation 13. He's defeated, cast out, and falls to the earth. Still wanting a kingdom of his own, he tempts and, he, he tempts and deceives humanity to hand dominion over to, to him. 
Humanity does at the fall, and now Satan has his own kingdom, a kingdom of darkness, and he thinks he's one. He thinks he's, he's going to forever subjugate humanity under sin and, and darkness. But then God says, no, I will make enmity between you and the woman's offspring. I will raise up a remnant of people, a kingdom of my own in the midst of your kingdom, and they will overthrow your kingdom, and not even the gates of hell can withstand them. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. This is the hope of regeneration, that we are no longer slaves to sin. Citizens of the, of the kingdom of darkness only, be, only able to choose sin and to follow unrighteousness. But because God fulfills this hope, this curse in the garden through the advent of his son, we are now free to choose God, to choose what is good, to choose righteousness. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 1 to 5, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God curses the enemy, the serpent, with the hope that one day a people after God's heart will rise up and oppose him by choosing God. Church, this is our freedom, our citizenship, our, our past that says you no longer have to choose sin. You no longer have to live in, in, in the darkness of shame and guilt and regret and lust and, and greed and selfishness. God has chosen you to be a remnant who will hate sin and oppose the enemy and choose the good and love righteousness. Don't live as you were, as one, as, as one who was part of the kingdom of this world. This is no longer your home. If you are in Christ, you are the fulfillment of this hope of regeneration. Now, this curse doesn't stop there. God continues. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The Hebrew word there for offspring is zerah, literally meaning seed. Now, this definition is important because this verse needs to be read in this way. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Why is this important? Because anyone who has taken a grade 6 health class in Canada knows that women do not have seeds. Women have eggs, and the men have seeds. Judah, can you cover your ears for a second? Right? And the same goes in Scripture. Whenever it talks about the seed, it always relates to the father or the male. It's never the woman, except on this one occasion. Why? Because the seed of the woman is a very specific prophecy. It is a prophecy that promises that a woman would one day give birth to a male child without ever having slept with a man. This is the story of Christmas. The virgin birth, God coming in the flesh, the advent of Christ. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son 
and you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. And listen, it doesn't stop there because the seed of the woman will have a specific task, a specific mission as to why he will be born. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman came to crush the serpent's head and to bruise his own heel. The, the, the first part we understand as a destruction of the enemy, but the second part, the bruising of his heel, this denotes what the seed of the woman will do on our behalf. Remember, it, it was Adam and Eve who was in the garden. In fact, it should have been Adam or Eve who, who crushed the serpent's head. But instead, God says, no, the seed of the woman will be the one to do so and take the bruise on the heel. Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. We know this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet he was esteemed him. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The mission of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, was to redeem fallen humanity. To take the punishment that we deserve unto himself so that we would be forgiven of sin and once again have a right relationship with God. This is the hope of redemption. The hope of redemption. Not only does God administer retribution on the enemy who deceived humanity in the garden, not only does he promise a remnant of people that would tear down and oppose the kingdom of darkness, but God in his curse over the serpent promises us the hope of a redeemer. The seed of the woman, the one who will crush the serpent's head and take our punishment, our bruising himself is Jesus Christ. Church, this is the hope that the Christmas season ought to remind us of, the fulfillment of God's promise that we no longer have to live under the guilt and shame of sin, that we no longer have to live in the kingdom of darkness and death, in, that in Christ we have redemption, freedom from sin. We are citizens of heaven, able to choose what is pleasing and good to God. It is hope that whatever dark day, whatever trial we face in this life, that we have a living hope that assures us that there is more for us than just this fallen and painful, painful world. There's more for us than just the sorrow and the grief of sin. This is why back in Genesis, the promise of the Messiah, the proto-evangelium, the hope of redemption comes before the curse of the woman and the curse of the man. As to say, whatever you face in this life, whatever pains of childbirth, whatever dysfunction in your relationships, whatever hardships in your life, remember the hope that has already been declared, has already been promised to you. Remember that one day that the seed of the woman will come back to reconcile us to a holy God. This is the hope we celebrate in Christmas. This is the hope that we are all invited to believe, to put our faith, our trust in, the hope that God has completed his promise, that he's provided the way to a right relationship with him, that in Christ we have victory over the enemy, over the kingdoms of darkness, over sin, over the trials of this world, and, light, and that like a gift on Christmas morning, we don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. 
All we have to do is receive it by faith. So I invite you tonight, if you have yet to do this, to receive the hope of the Advent season. The hope that bore fruit at the birth of Christ and fully ripened at his death and resurrection, but whose seed was planted in the garden. That's why we can sing. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that though we were the ones to fail you, and though we were the ones to disobey, though we were the ones to blame you and run away, God, you still promised us the hope of your Son. That God, we can look back on the prophecies and the fulfillment of them in Jesus Christ and know that our hope is alive. And know that God, though we are berated every day, though we are tempted, though we are attacked by the enemy, we know that he's already been defeated. And then though, though we are weak in the flesh of God, we know that you have given us the ability by your spirit, to choose the good, to love righteousness, to do your will. And we know, God, that by your Son we have been redeemed. But it is through Jesus Christ that we have a right relationship, a reconciled relationship with you, Father. That it is through the promised Son that our punishment, our bruising, our death was taken, was placed on him. Oh God, forgive us for the times where we dwell in the land of darkness, where we choose our old life over the new life that you have given us. Forgive us for the times, oh God, where we Forget, O oh Lord, the hope that we have in Christ. Where we succumb to temptation, where we succumb to fear, where we succumb to the, the schemes of the evil one. Forget, O oh Lord, what you have done out of your great love for us. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would be reminded of the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would be reminded of the salvation and the joy and the peace and the hope that we have in your Son. This Christmas season, Lord, I pray that we would slow down with all the busyness, with all the events and everything that's coming and just recall, oh Lord, the 
greatest joy, the greatest peace, the greatest hope, the greatest gift we have, you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Please change our hearts. Make us a changed people as we leave this place, oh God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you are blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.